Mark chapter 9. There we go. Okay. All right. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. Like, can we start over? Can we just <laughs> delete, right, everything that's going on? Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 30. I told you we were going through, uh, we're going through the gospel of Mark. We're not hitting everything, but we're going to highlight a couple of things. And that's exactly what we're going to do today. We're going to be talking about a, a scorecard. Anybody grow up going to baseball games? like with your parents or, or anybody, anybody may, so when I would grow up or when I was growing up, we lived in Wyoming, so we didn't have a lot of professional, matter of fact, at the time, Denver didn't have uh, the, the Colorado Rockies. They had this team called the Denver Bears when I was little that was a double A team, uh, and then we got the Denver Zephyrs that became the triple A team for the Milwaukee Brewers, so I got to watch some guys like Dan Plezak and, and uh, Gary Sheffield before he became a Hall of Fame uh, player through the Yankees and a couple other organizations uh, when they were in AAA. But I remember going to those games, and I remember the one I remember the most uh, was a, actually a preseason game where the San Diego Padres and the Boston Red Sox played in Denver preseason game. Jim Rice was the left fielder for the Red Sox. Steve Garvey was the first baseman for the Padres. So I'm going back old school. For those of you who aren't baseball fans, I'm sorry. You're just missing out on two of the best players in baseball. And if you're like, I don't care, and I don't know who those guys are, go home and look them up. So anyways, all right. But I remember going to this game, and my grandfather was a huge baseball fan. He was from Philly or the Philly area, loved the Phillies, loved Mike Schmidt, loved everything about the Phillies. Um, and, but my grandfather would keep score. Anybody ever go to, 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 to a game and, and you had somebody who you went with that kept score? All right, okay, so some of you understand what I'm talking about or what I'm talking about when I talk about a scorecard. You begin to go through and you're tracking everything that goes on throughout the game. And likewise, there are things that maybe you take part in day in and day out that you have a scorecard on. Anybody super competitive and you maybe take your family to go putt-putt golfing and don't keep score? Who doesn't keep score? Good, I would never take you with me. Right? <laughs> okay. Because my whole idea of putt-putt is like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to win. Right? And there's this friendly bantering, you know, back and forth between, you know, when, when, when you got kids, it's not that big a deal, but I'm like keeping track with my wife because I'm going to make sure I beat her. Um, and there's been a few times I've lost, but I'm not going to brag about those. Um, <laughs> so, but I want you to think about this. In life, we've got scorecards right now that go on. And, and, and to a certain extent, we have worldly scorecards. And then we have what Jesus lays out as a, as, a, as a biblical scorecard or the way things work. And so when I ask this idea of if you've ever kept score, I would venture to say that in our lives, most of the times we do keep score. That we look at circumstances and situations. We look at people through these scorecards, through these lenses of scorecards that, that put value or purpose or meaning in somebody's life. Or maybe we look at them and go, well, that's, that's not really right. That's not correct. And so today, as we jump in, we're going to jump into Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. And then we're going to kind of jump through the next chapter. But listen to what he says in verse 30. It says that they left this place. What place are they talking about? Well, Jesus had just healed or just cast out a demon on a boy that the disciples had tried to cast out this demon on but couldn't. And Jesus comes in and he does it and the disciples are like, what did you do that we didn't? And Jesus said, hey, well, here's the deal. It's all about prayer. And I 
the prayer is what took care of this. And so it says they left this place. This boy has been healed. The demon was cast out. They left the place. They had passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were. And it says, because he was teaching his disciples, he said to them, what's he say to them? The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days, he will rise. And listen, here's here's the beauty of the disciples. Now, I know a lot of times the disciples get a bad rap, but we have to think about, put ourselves in this situation every day. It says, they did not understand what he meant, and they were afraid to ask him about it. So Jesus is talking about, I am going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to kill me, and after three days, he's going to rise again. And the disciples are like, huh? What? Like, we don't get it. We don't understand. And that's going to lead us into these seven little parables, little stories about this idea of a scorecard. It's like how people try and keep track of what's going on or who has value. See, the question I want to ask you is this, what scorecard am I using in my life? Because our world has a scorecard, and that scorecard is handed to you at birth. There's this scorecard of this, that you get graded on everyday things in our life. Where do you live? What do you do? How much do you make? What do you look like? Who do you know? What do you have? Where do you go? Where did you go to school? All of those things begin to be scorecards that the world says is of value. It has purpose, it has meaning when the reality is the scorecard is completely different when we follow Jesus. So we've been taking this quick journey through Mark, through Mark's gospel, and we're coming into this section right here, this chunky section of scripture where Jesus is going to redefine what it means to win, what it means to lead, what it means to serve. And and he's going to start by basically ripping up the scorecards that the world says is of value, right? The, the, the scorecards that people say, this is what is important. So if you, again, have your Bibles, follow along with me. We're going to kind of jump through the end of nine and most of, or all of 10. And I'm going to unpack these very simple stories very quickly so that we can begin to unpack. Seven different movements or seven different stories that are going to, or these moments in Jesus' life that are going to deconstruct, right? That means to tear down the world scorecard and establish, where Jesus is going to establish his own scorecard. So if you remember anything, I want you to remember this, that Jesus Christ changes the scorecard in our life. And listen, he wants us to win while the world says we're going to lose, right? Jesus changes the scorecard in our life, and he wants us to win while the world says, well, you're really losing if you look at things through that lens, or if you look at things through that scorecard or in that way. So Jesus changes the scorecard. He flips it upside down. And the first one we see is this, right? Here's number one, last to first. Now, here's where I talk about the biggest moment of the disciples not getting it. Like Jesus just said, I'm going in, I'm going to be betrayed, they're going to kill me, I'm going to be in the grave for three days, but I'm not going to stay there. And what do the disciples argue about? (laughs) Right, right? Like this would be like your dad or mom going, hey, I've just been diagnosed with cancer. 
I am going to die. And you go, can I have your car? Wait, I just told you I'm going to die. Yeah, I know. Can I have your car when you die? I mean, like all of us would be like, what the heck is wrong with you? But listen to what the disciples do, right? Jesus just said that. They're, they're, they go to Capernaum while he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about? Right? On the road. But they kept quiet. Because on the way, they had argued about who is going to be the greatest. Now, here's the reality. Here's what's going on. Most of us go, well, yeah, see, they're, 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 they're arguing about who's going to be greater. But the reality is what they're saying is, hey, when Jesus dies, who's going to be the one that rises up? Who's going to step up and be the, the leader of this group? Who's going to be the one that everybody's going to follow? Who's going to be the greatest? And so you talk about a massive moment of not getting the big picture of what's going on. And here's how Jesus comes in and teaches it. Jesus flips the script on him. And and here's what I love. It says, what were you arguing about on the road? Jesus asked him, what are you arguing about? And what's he want him to be? Honest. And they know, right? But it says they kept quiet. It's like Jesus was not asking a rhetorical question here. Jesus wants them to be truthful and honest. And so instead, because they kept quiet, Jesus comes out and he says, sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and he said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the what? The last and the servant of all. So Jesus flips the script. In order to be first, you have to be what? Last. If you want to be a leader, then you serve. And the problem is today is everybody wants leadership without the sacrifice of serving. A true leader is somebody who sacrifices by serving first and leads the way by doing what others maybe won't at the start. Like, how can I help you accomplish what you are called to do by serving you rather than leading you from the front? Now, there are a couple ways we look at this. Number one, we, say, we see that Jesus is the chief shepherd and the chief shepherd leads his people. It says that it's the idea that Jesus is leading, right? And as Jesus leads, we should lead as well. But listen to me, Jesus is the chief shepherd, chief shepherd also served. He chased after the one who left the 99. He laid his life down for the good of the rest of the flock, right? To protect the one, to go after the one. And what we have to begin to understand is as a true leader or somebody who wants to lead, then we have to serve. And so we talk about, we want to get to the big point of understanding that in order to be somebody who is great in the eyes of God or great in the kingdom, Jesus says, don't seek the leadership position out without having an attitude of service. Because when you serve, when you put yourself last, now you're setting yourself up for success in what God wants to do. But when you strive for that leadership position for the point of influence and power, you're not necessarily setting out to serve, but you're rather setting out for your own self-gratification and glory. And here's what's crazy about this. He teaches him about this. And then it says, he took a little child and he had him stand among them, taking him in his arms. And he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. And here's what he's saying. 
right? In the midst of everything that's gone on, and he's going to go on and kind of unpack this just a little bit more. In a world where it was all about, hey, children were better seen but not heard, Jesus points the big picture to say, hey, listen up. Here's the good news. The good news is that you need to welcome those who are far from me, that you take advantage of those opportunities. And Jesus flips around the last and first, making the losing now the idea of winning. So Jesus keeps a different score, right? Last will be first. Number two, Jesus keeps different score with this. Instead of looking at others as competition, we look for commonality. Here's one of my biggest pet peeves as a pastor, is when you look at another church and go, well, that's competition. Or if I hear people in the church go, well, yeah, that's like, that, that's, that's another church. Aren't we all in it together? Like, if we're claiming to be blood-bought, redeemed people who have put our faith and trust in Jesus, why would we look at another church and go, well, that's competition, they're a problem? Like, I mean, let's, let's be realistic here. 120,000 people in independence. If we reach, let's just throw this out there. If we reach 30% of independence, our churches would have nowhere to sit. Nowhere. And I'm talking every church in independence. There would not be room to sit. We'd have multiple services, people packing out doors, and we'd be looking, we'd be going, man, that's great. And as a pastor, listen to me, I have heard it on multiple occasions. I'm not saying necessarily here, but I have heard it on multiple occasions where we look at the other person's competition. Listen to what happens. Listen to John. He says this, teacher, we saw a man driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. In other words, he wasn't one of the 12, Jesus. He shouldn't be casting out demons. And what does Jesus say? Jesus said, don't stop him. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me, for whoever is not against us is for us. Now, here's the crazy thing about this text when you think about this, right? These guys, this, this, these guys try and stop this gentleman, this man who had cast out a demon, and they said, hey, we, we told him he couldn't do it because he's not one of us, but here's what's crazy about it. The disciples are upset because they saw some other people doing the very same thing that they were doing, but yet they weren't part of the twelve. And the power of God is at work in this individual's life, and it only comes through God himself. As a matter of fact, here's how we know it can come from God himself. If you were to flip over to Acts chapter 19, I'm going to flip there for you, and I'm going to read it. But if you were to flip over to Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 13, listen to what happens when somebody tries to cast out a demon in the name of Jesus, but isn't part of Jesus. It's a great story. It says this, there were some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits. And they tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, listen to this, not, in other words, not a person that we relate to or connect with, but in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out, right? So like these people are like, well, hey, we saw, we saw Paul, Paul did this. Paul cast out demons. Here's what happened. Seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest, they were doing this, and one day, the evil spirit answered him, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? It says, then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. 
So here are these people who invoke, cast out a demon, but as a result of invoking the name of Jesus, get the beating of their lifetime because they weren't in Jesus. They didn't have the power of Jesus working in them. They didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit at work. And so as a result, they get absolutely beat down. I mean, could you imagine walking here like, I'm gonna cast this demon out, step up, tell him to get out in the name of Jesus. The dude rises up, jumps up, beats you to a pulp and rips all your clothes off and leaves you naked and bleeding. Anybody railing to walk across town naked and bleeding? No. No, Jesus flips the scorecard in each and every way. And what he says to, 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 to his disciples is this. Listen, the only way that person is able to do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit working in him. And so here's what I say. When a new church moves in, when a church multiplies and is growing, and I've heard it over and over and over again, well, they must not be doing something right. People are being baptized. Wait, what? People are coming to Jesus. They can't be doing something right. Last I checked scripture, isn't that the point? Like churches should be baptizing. Churches should be reaching people who are lost. And instead of complaining about the other people and telling them, well, look, they're not part of us. You finally get it. Right? Now listen to me. I will be very clear on this. There are churches who teach false theology and false doctrine and things like that. There are things that we disagree on at times on things. If you acknowledge that Jesus is the only way, Jesus was born of a virgin, Jesus died on the cross, Jesus was sinless, Jesus rose again, defeating sin and defeating death, guess what? We're on the same team. We may have some significant doctrinal differences, but if you can hold to what we call the essentials, then we're good to go. And we don't have to look at them as competition. We can work together for the good of the gospel, for the glory of Jesus and for the Father. And so he flips the script. He changes the card. He says, from, get away from this competition mentality to get away or to get into this commonality or common ground thing. We have to stay away from the competition and look towards cooperation. Number three, he says this. It's this dismissal to dignity. Jesus changes the scorecard from, scorecard from dismissing people to giving people dignity. Here's what happens in verse or chapter 10. The, the, the Pharisees, these teachers of the law come to him and they said, hey, you know what? Moses said we could divorce. What do you think about that? And Jesus says, well, the reason Moses said you could divorce is because the heart is your heart. And here's what I want to claim on this. And here's what we have to begin to understand. In that cultural context, I already just said that children were subservient. They were to be seen and not heard. And really, even better yet, not even seen. But women, likewise, were to be silent, not to be listened to. And so men could rise up and make up a trumped allegation and say, hey, look, I, don't wanna, I no longer want to be married. And since I don't want to be married, this person did this. I'll make it up. They're not of equal value anyway, so we're going to cut ties and run. And what Jesus says is, hey, the reason Moses allowed or gave you that certificate of divorce was because, listen, of the hardness of your heart. In other words, when I'm talking about this idea of dismissal to dignity, let me be very clear on this. That in some way, shape, or form, men had begun to treat or had been treating women as if they were lower, not equal to, and not the same. 
Right now, a matter of fact, there seems to be some pretty hard hearts in many people's lives, even in some quote-unquote professed believers who would venture into the world that women aren't equal. Last I checked in Genesis, when God created man and then created woman out of man, he created them equal. Partners, teammates, confidants, working together for the good of the gospel to be strengthened, to be equipped, to be encouraged. Now, listen, he did give different roles. The husband's to be the leader, but as the leader, listen to me, Ephesians chapter 5. Everybody always wants to pull out and say, say, see, tells women to be subservient or uh, uh, submissive, sorry. Okay, Ephesians 5.22, it says the women to be submissive to their husbands. Somebody tell me what the verse is before that. Yeah, well, no, it says that you are to be mutually submissive to one another out of obedience to Jesus. So guess what that means, men? That we also mutually submit. Listen, out of obedience to Jesus is the key point, right? Out of obedience to Jesus, that when my wife calls me out or calls me on the carpet to be subservient to Jesus first and foremost, that I should be mutually submissive to my wife just as well. This is huge because it goes from dismissal to dignity. That it's not a lording it over them, but it's rather, it's, it's a care for and a compassion. Why? Because we're created of, of, of equal value and we have the same value and the same dignity. So Jesus flips the scorecard from dismissal to dignity. Number four, Jesus flips the scorecard from hierarchy to humility. Look at chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. He says, people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, listen, he was indignant. Does anybody know what that word indignant means? Good, let me tell you. Indignant literally means this. It means that he was angry or annoyed over the unfair treatment of the children. Right? He was indignant. I mean, you ever been to a point where you have let somebody down who you would say is over you? Maybe somebody who is teaching you or instructing you in some ways and you'd say, I let them down. Maybe you said something or you did something and they come back and they're ticked off. They're angry over the fact of what you did, right? Over the unfair treatment of what's going on. And literally it's saying Jesus was indignant with them. He was angry over their unfair treatment of the children as if, as if they looked at the children and were like, they're a problem, they're a nuisance rather than they are a, a benefit. And so let me clarify this from our standpoint as a church. We have to begin to understand that we have to do anything and everything to reach children with the gospel. But hear me out when I say this. I've heard church after church after church say, we're going to do anything and everything we can to reach the kids with the gospel. Do you know what the best odds of reaching the kids are? Reach the parents. Your number one person to target is the father. Your odds of reaching a family are 93% greater if you reach the father. They go down if you reach the mother. And I'm not saying you can't. But if you only reach the mother and not the father, the odds of reaching the whole family go down. 
You reach the Father, 93% chance you, you reach every one of the family members in that area. This should speak volumes, men, for how we lead within the church, how I lead within my community, and how I target my friends. Listen to me. How I look at my friends and I say, this person needs Jesus. And if I can just be bold, if I can share and pray consistently over and over and over for that father, that I can speak the gospel with great boldness, that I can lead them to Jesus, your odds of reaching them, the odds of growing our church and our children's ministry increase when you reach the parents. So hear me out, church, when I say this, and I, I'm, I'm trying to get this uh, into a way that we all begin to understand that in order to see the gospel flourish and multiply, we have to be willing to take the gospel to the very ones that we're connected with on a daily basis. So it moves from hierarchy, listen, to humility, and here's the humility. He says this, let the little, little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And he says this, I tell the truth, anyone who will receive the kingdom of God like a little children, or sorry, if anyone or anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Here's the humility aspect that plays in. It takes the humility of a child to receive or to enter into the kingdom of God. If you remember anything, I talked about this with Mark. Mark is huge on this aspect. Mark is huge on the kingdom of God, the already, not yet, right? And he's huge on immediately. Jesus immediately goes and does all of these things. 42 times in the gospel of Mark, he's like, Jesus went immediately. Jesus did this immediately, at once. You'll see that over and over and over again. 42 times in 16 chapters, that means it's pretty what? Important. And what we have to begin to understand is that we have to give an understanding and we have to have a humility. We have to have the humility of a child to enter the kingdom of God, but we also have to have a humility to say, listen, in the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, that I consider others better than myself. And as I consider others better than myself, that means that the last will be first, the first will be last, that I will serve those who are over me out of humility. Why? Because that's the same attitude that Jesus would have. So number four was hierarchy to humility. Number five is prosperity to generosity. We could spend a whole time on each one of these sections, each, each one of these. Matter of fact, this rich young ruler, this rich young man is one that we could unpack in a greater detail, but I want you to understand this, this prosperity to generosity aspect that is taking place here. Jesus, it says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him and said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And he says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And listen to what the man's response is. Well, all of these I have kept. So Jesus looked at him and loved him. Listen to this, here's the great news, the great story. In the midst of this, Jesus looked at him, realizing that he was falling short and loved him. And he says this, one thing you lack Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Now, a lot of us look at that and go, 
But Jesus was requiring him to get rid of everything. And here's what I would always say, that when I choose to follow Jesus at some point in time, Jesus may require me to give up everything. But what Jesus was really using was a teaching moment to show the man where his priorities were. His priority was finances and money. And so when Jesus throws out this thing, hey, go and sell, go and respond with generosity. Why? Why are believers, why should believers be the people who are generous? Because Jesus was generous first, right? For that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while I was still trapped in my sin, Jesus said, I am going to be generous and I'm going to die for you. So the reason why believers should be the most generous is because we're living out a Christ-like example. And so we move from prosperity to generosity. Now, I know the teachings, and I've sat and listened to people talk about this, that if you were a really true follower of Jesus, you would prosper in everything. In other words, financially, you would be loaded and rich. It's called the health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospel. And what some of those teachers will say is, well, if you don't, if you're not rich, then you don't have faith in Jesus. And what Jesus is trying to do is flip the scorecard here. Being rich in the world is not the problem. The problem stems from his heart. It's what holds his heart. It's the fact that the money is the thing that is sitting on the throne of his heart, not Jesus. The Lord isn't the primary thing, it's his money. And so in culture, we often think that richness means God's blessing, while poverty means God's cursing. Whereas Jesus flips the scorecard. Riches can impoverish you and keep you from the greatest treasure ever. The very riches that you have on earth can impoverish you and keep you from the greatest treasure ever, which is Jesus. So the goal is not prosperity but generosity. Number six, from positional authority to sacrificial authority. We've kind of hit on this and already talked about this, but here's what's crazy. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to the teacher and they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. In other words, we're right back to, hey, I'm about to die. Great, can I have your car? Can I have your position of leadership. So they ask, what do you want me to do for, Jesus asked, what do you want me to do? Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left. James and John, if you know anything about the main three, Peter, James, John, right? James and John come apart from Peter. Hey, Jesus, come here. Hey, when you die and we die, can one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left? Hear what's going on here? It's a striving for positional authority. And listen to me, I believe wholeheartedly that that shouldn't be anywhere in play. Not in the life of a believer, not in the life of the church. That positional authority shouldn't matter. The position of the person is not what makes a person great. But rather it's the heart of the individual. If you want to be great, Jesus goes right back and he says, serve. In verse 43, it says, listen, 
I'm going to jump back into verse 41. When the 10 heard about this, here's the beauty of this great word indignant. When the other 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Oh, look at this unfair treatment. James and John pulled Jesus off to the side. We're angry because they sought unfair advantage. Now listen to what Jesus, Jesus calls all of them together then. He knows that 10 are indignant. He knows that two want positional authority. And he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. And believers, this is the statement that Jesus would make to us. Not so with you. Brian, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Positional authority or leadership is not the main point. Matter of fact, it's one of those things that I said for the longest time, and I'm not, I have no desire to rise into some positional, uh, po- some, some positional authoritarian position and lead unless the Lord was to call it out. I'm, I'm not that kind of person. Matter of fact, I, I would tell you this point blank. I would much rather be where I'm at than to be in some big wig kind of political position. I would much rather be serving this church than anywhere else. I can guarantee you that. And I would just say that, that we set out, that we strive for these things, that we are sacrificial leaders. And then the last thing we're going to see, Jesus flips the script on the scorecard because he takes somebody who everybody else looked at as expendable and he turns them into essential. Listen to what happens. Blind Bartimaeus receives his sight. Jesus is walking along one day. And as he's walking along, the disciples are with him. There's a blind man sitting off the side named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is coming. And as Jesus is coming, blind Bartimaeus says, he heard that Jesus is in Nazareth and he begins to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And I have no doubt that there are people on the sides of the roads, in our neighborhoods, and in where we work, who are blind Bartimaeus, who are looking for and grasping and calling out for mercy. God have mercy. And listen to how the crowds respond They basically say, man, this guy's expendable. Matter of fact, it says many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. I mean, carry this out and think about this. It's like looking at the man who's in desperate need of Jesus and looking and going, shut up. You're annoying. You've annoyed us for years because you're blind and you're sitting there and you're begging And here's what's crazy. That dude shows his desperation in his faith. Because what's it say he does? I love the story and how it plays out. They told him to shut up. And it says at that point they had rebuked him. And it says that he shouted all the more. Do you hear that playing out? He shouted all the more. Jesus! Son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody's like, shut up, dude. You're distracting him. Oh, well, let me get a little bit louder. Right? It's like, you think I'm annoying now? I'm gonna annoy the daylights out of you. Matter of fact, maybe if I annoy him long enough, Jesus is gonna turn around and... And it shows that his desperation for healing leads Jesus to stop. He hears him. 
and he calls blind Bartimaeus to him, and he heals him. He's no longer blind. And he says, with great, with a great thing, he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, I want to see. And Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. Listen, I believe wholeheartedly, church, that these seven things that play out are the scorecard in our life that God, listen, he wants us to win. He wants other people to win, but Satan is set up for us to lose. And when we strive for positional authority or when we say, listen, you're expendable and we don't have to listen to you. When we look at other people and we say, we want to be first and you're going to be last. When we look at other churches or, or, or individuals as competition rather than working together. When we look at people and we want to dismiss them rather than offering them dignity and the pursuit that God has placed on them because they have great purpose. They were made with purpose and for purpose. When we look at those things and look at the scorecard, we miss out on the opportunity of what Jesus wants to do. And so listen, when I say this, I hope and pray that as we've dug into this today, that we change our scorecard. That we don't seek that position but that the Lord opens up those positions as we serve, as we lead in those opportunities. That we don't look for positional authority, but we lead sacrificially. And as we lead sacrificially, guess what? Others are gonna come along and put us into positions of leadership and authority or ask us to lead in those ways. These are the great things that when we respond in the right way, we respond with humility, having the same attitude as that of Jesus Christ, that we can do great things together. And so hear me out when I say this. And I hope you've been encouraged by this idea. But I want to ask you that question. What scorecard are you playing by? Because listen to me, even in the midst of what's going on, we can look at people and go, see, they're expendable or we can look at people and say, hey, no, wait, they've got great purpose. I brought it up earlier in our announcements. So I want you to think about this. Right now, trips around the world for pretty much are shut down. But here's the good news, right? Here's the great news. Regardless of where you're at politically, the nations are coming to the United States. We got a choice as a church. We either serve the nations with the gospel, we try and reach the people with the good news of the gospel, or we sit back and we complain and go, they're expendable, what about me? We sit back and go, I'm first, they're last. We sit back and we look and we go, they're the problem, we're not. We sit back and we go, hey, Jesus, he doesn't have time for children, he needs to be focused on adult things. And so we have an option we have an option in how we approach the ministry. So while the world may be shut down to travel and going into locations, listen to me, we have an opportunity to make a huge impact by not only reaching our neighbors, but by reaching across nationalities right here in Kansas City. And so there's gonna be more of that to come. I've told you we're gonna be going to Montana. Matter of fact, I'm leading two trips to Montana, one in April, one in May. But when we're gonna have that set up in July, we're gonna be taking a mission trip to Montana. That's gonna be an opportunity for us. We're gonna have some things, hopefully throughout the summer, where we're able to partner and do some day mission trips out here in Kansas City where we can work and serve with different nationalities. They're right here in Kansas City. We have a large Somali population. We have a large African population 
from multiple countries across Africa. We have a large Middle Eastern population. All of which are people who need to hear the good news of the gospel. Are we willing to do something about it? Or are we willing to sit back and keep the same old scorecard and go, nah. Change our scorecard. And here's what's crazy about it. When we change the scorecard, how we win is different, isn't it? If we keep the same scorecard that the world says is okay, that this is the, then how we win is completely different. You win by dying with the most toys, most money, largest possessions of property, best clothes, most popularity. And Jesus says all of that's for naught. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. <clears throat> we thank you for the fact that you have changed the scorecard. We thank you for the fact that we can look at these stories and in some way, shape, or form, place ourselves in them in some way. That God, you are calling us to do great things. That God, you have gifted us with the power and the ability to do these great things through the power of your spirit. That God, we know that when Jesus is at work in us, that Jesus is going to work through us. And so Lord, I pray that we would make every effort to allow Jesus to work each and every day in our hearts and in our minds, that as we dig into the word, as we pray, that you would point out the people who need the good news, who need to be loved on and cared for and, 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 and just encouraged as we walk through. God, may we speak with great boldness and great hope, knowing that regardless of what's going on in the world, that you have called us to a higher purpose, to a higher kingdom, that we are working as, as, as good soldiers, as, as obedient people, as disciples of you, to share the truth of the gospel to those who are desperate and needing it. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.